but before we start Revelation chapter 11, uh, as always, we're so thankful for how the Lord, Lord works and moves, and we're so thankful we've seen people saved the last few weeks. This week, uh, this Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to be starting a band ministry, and so uh, if you would like to help me pick up kids or ride, I would greatly appreciate it. So... Uh, uh, so that's going to be starting, and uh, also tonight we have someone who is coming to uh, join our fellowship. And so tonight, uh, Roger Lee is coming on a statement of faith uh, to join this church body. So I will entertain a motion and a second. All in favor that are members, please say aye. 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 Amen. And so congratulations and condolences, depending on how get out. See those kind of things. Uh, I didn't help you on that yeah. one. Yes. But, uh, Revelation chapter 11, we are halfway through. Uh, we are at a pivotal point in the book of Revelation. We're getting ready to witness the seventh trumpet unfold. And if you remember back in chapter 8, verse 13, uh, 8 verse 13, it said, And I looked and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And so, as we've been looking through the book of Revelation, working our way through it from a... Uh, uh, from a view of the seven-year period, uh, the church has already been raptured out at the beginning of that seven-year period, and we are coming to the very end of the tribulation period. We don't know if it is days, we don't know if it is weeks, we don't know if it might be a few months, uh, but the two witnesses have preached. Uh, they were protected until they were uh, accomplished their purpose. The Lord took them to heaven in a miniature rapture, and then we witnessed something. The seventh trumpet, this this third woe. And this is very important because this is where a lot of times the book of Revelation begins to confuse us. Because we finish up this chapter and then we go into chapter 12 and we start looking at things that we're like, well, wait a second, this should have already happened. And so what I believe is when you come to the end of chapter 11, this seventh trumpet here, from here all the way through chapter 19, with the exception of 12, 13, and 14, is all a part of this seventh trumpet. Right? We've seen the seals, we've seen the trumpets, we've seen the bowl judgments, and so all of these judgments in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, all of that is unfolding as a part of the seventh trumpet. Okay, so it's not like the trumpet blows and then we move on to something else. No, all of this is happening within the confines of this seventh trumpet, just like the trumpets were a part of the seventh first one. And so it's important to remember that because when we get to chapter 12, we're going to look back at really the Antichrist and how Satan have worked through the tribulation period. So for chapters 1 through 11, we're watching the scene in heaven, we're watching the scene in, on earth, but chapters 12 and 14 are not happening after chapter 11. It's John going back and pointing out to us what the Antichrist has done, how Satan has been working, how the beast has been working. And so if you just end chapter 11, and jump into chapters 12, 13, and 14, it will confuse you greatly. And so remember that when we end chapter 11, right here in verse 15, we look here and it says, Then the seventh angel sounded. Okay? If you flip to chapter 15, alright? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So it picks back up. Alright, chapter 11 ends, and chronologically chapter 15 is there. Okay? But chapters 12, 13, and 14, looking at the beast and the dragon and the woman, is an overview of how Satan has been at work, what he has been doing, so that if you are a child of God who was saved during the tribulation period, you can look and have some explanation, some hope. Because if you and I are just witnessing this and living through this, 
I mean, can you imagine the hopelessness? If you remember the sixth woe and the fifth woe was, was millions of demons being unleashed on the earth to the point where they were torturing people but they could not die. And then it's an a army of, depending on how you believe that interpretation is, that are killing multitudes of people. We've seen multitudes of people killed by famine and disease and sickness. And so the hopelessness that you would be experiencing, and God is just reminding us, saying, hey, I know what's going on. I'm not surprised by this. You have not been abandoned, that I am with you. And we actually see that here in verses 15 through 19. We'll read it all and then we'll pray. And Lord willing, we will work through it verse by verse. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry, your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, great and small, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. And if you would pray with me. Father, we thank you so much tonight for what you're already doing and how you're at work. We thank you so much, Lord, as your spirit leads people to be a part of this local church. And Lord, we pray tonight that everything that is said and done would honor you. That we would have hearts to learn or hearts to, to grow in our love for you and your word. Tonight, Lord, I pray for clarity as I speak, confidence in your word, and Lord, that your spirit would do what you have promised to do, to use the word for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're taking notes, you see there's no lines tonight. Well, because some people have said that there's problems writing in the yellow and writing on the line. So a blank piece of paper should be good tonight. You say, Jake, I don't have the answers. You're right. I didn't put them on there, okay? Some of you fill in the answers and then you close your notes. And so ruined it for everybody. But, but the first thing I want to show you tonight is that God is in control. Look at verse 15 here. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. You have heard something about the kingdom in the Lord's teachings in the book of Matthew. If you remember when Jesus was teaching His followers to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-13, through 13, it says, in this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want you to look there in verse 15 because if you have a Bible like I have or another Bible, there's probably a little number there by the kingdoms of this world. Originally, that would have been the kingdom of this world. And when you think about that, it's very important because even though there are different nations, even though there are different traditions, even there have been different armies and nations throughout history, truly there is only one ruler of this world, and that is Satan. Now we know that he operates under the authority of the Father, but it says, right, the God of this age, the, the ruler of this age. And what we know is no matter what a nation is, even though God has established government, and we are called to obey the government, right, to respect it, but we must never forget that even though God ordained government, the leaders in government are always corrupt. They will almost always be wicked. 
And so while we will honor them into any point that they do not contradict the Word of God, how do you think Nazi Germany silenced the church during the Second World War? Submit like the Bible says. Well, they should have known, right, that the murder and arrest of people based on their, their nationality or other things would have been what? Against the Word of God. And so what we see here, though, is that it's showing this simple truth that while Satan has been the ruler of this age under the authority of God, we know that at the Tower of Babel they were trying to build to heaven, right? And God separated it, right? He confused the languages. But when you read the book of Revelation and you watch what the Antichrist is going to do in chapters 12, 13, and 14, what he does is he brings all of the wickedness of the world, all of the kingdoms of this world, in direct rebellion against God. He unites what was divided in Genesis. And what we see here is a great word of hope. Because when you read it, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And even though God has been in control, God is, is sovereign over all, at this point, what we're going to see in this seventh judgment, this seventh a trumpet, is the Lord taking back what is rightfully His. Destroying Satan. We can read about it in Revelation chapter 19. We can see what that battle of Armageddon is going to look like when this united kingdom of evil the fallenness of mankind goes to war against God and the Lord steps out and destroys His enemies. And so when you read verse chapters 11, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, remember that this is all being fulfilled in this time frame. Alright, because if you read this and said, well wait a second, uh, he's destroyed him now, but he doesn't destroy him till chapter 19. No. It's this whole seventh trumpet. It's this whole last few days or weeks of the tribulation. Because when you read there in this same text, I don't know what translation you use, but in the New King James, it's have become. Or I think the NIV is beginning. And what that means in the Greek is this. It is a future event that is guaranteed to happen. And I was trying to think about how to describe that and something happened in our family this week. My oldest one was saying that one of these days, Jesus is supposed to come back. And my second child goes, don't talk like that. She goes, he's not supposed to come back. He is coming back. And I was like, good for you. And my oldest one's like, but that's what I meant. And she's like, that's not what you said. And I thought, that is exactly what this phrase can mean. It's beginning. It will happen. It is a guarantee for a future event. It's not a question of if Jesus is going to destroy Satan. It's not a question if God is not going to reclaim everything and make it right. It is going to happen. It is a guarantee. It's like when the Lord puts you in the palm of His hand. Nothing can separate you. When you're written in the Lamb's book of life, nothing can remove it. And so it's this great confidence because it goes on and says, not only will He take over it, that He is going to reign forever and ever. It is never going to end. It's never going to be taken from Him. It's His. And we have to have that confidence to know that Jesus is going to win. Now, what gets kind of tricky here is because when we look like at Revelation chapter 20 and we see the millennial reign, which I believe is a 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. That's why we're looking here at the kingdom of this world. Because if you remember, Jesus says at, before His crucifixion that my kingdom is not of this world. And so when He came the first time, He built a spiritual kingdom. But when He comes back again, He is going to rule and reign, I believe, for that thousand-year period on the earth, and then you are going to see a new heaven and a new earth, right? And so everything that man messed up in the garden, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, and if you want to flip over there, because I had so many verses tonight that I could not put them all on the paper. 
But if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, I believe it's verse 28. So I'm going off this by memory, okay? So you'll have to bear with me. Uh, when I started teaching the book of Revelation, Sunday morning sermons always get 12 hours. Sunday nights get 12 hours of preparation. And Wednesday nights always got about 4 or 5. But since I've been doing Revelation, it's been like 16 to 20 hours. So they're so full of stuff that sometimes it doesn't come out right. But in verse 28, look what God says about creation to Adam. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Or your, and it goes on and says, Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We messed it up with sin. We messed it up so bad that God is going to make it all new. But when He makes it all anew, it won't be Adam and Eve that have dominion. It will be Him. He will be in charge. And so when you read that first verse there, you can have confidence. And you say, well, Jake, if you believe like I do that we're not here, what does it matter? We're in heaven with Him. But it's going to matter to the Jews that have been saved. It's going to matter to those people who are alive and they're watching all of this go and they're watching the Antichrist and they're, they, they, they didn't take the mark of the beast and they couldn't buy and they couldn't sell and, and the waters have been polluted and the rivers have been polluted and everything is falling apart. In that moment, you need to hear God is in control. He is coming to take everything that ultimately belongs to Him. It's His. And that is such an encouragement for them, but it should be for us. I do not watch the news. If you come up to me and say, did you watch the news? No, I don't watch it because people are dumb, all right? And it seems like the dumber you make decisions, the more you are celebrated in the culture that we are living. I didn't call them fools like the Bible said. I said dumb, all right? And so sin has just run rampant in every area of wickedness. All of the things that make sense are upside down. We literally are living at a time when unrighteousness is called righteous and righteousness is mocked. And so I don't watch it. I read a lot, but I don't watch it. But you can see this, that if we did not have faith in the Lord, can you imagine the anxiety? Why is it that in the most blessed nation on the face of the earth, we have more people struggling with anxiety, fear, record numbers and counseling. Not that, oh, any, not that that's bad, but we're seeing it time and place. Think about this. In the poorest nations in the world, having multiple children is looked at a what? It's a blessing. In the poorest nations in the world, they have tons of kids. But in the richest nation on the world, when we look at kids, we ask, how can we afford them? Even our, our thoughts on having children, but yet the Bible says that the, that the fruit of the womb is a, it's a blessing. But yet we look at having children not as a blessing, but how many can I afford? Now, I understand that you've got to pay for your kids. I'm in the middle of it right now. And I haven't had weddings or prom dresses or... You know, all of that college. So I look at it and think, I've got a kidney to sell. It's probably coming, all right? <laughs> yeah, I know. But that's how even that something as simple as that, when God said be fruitful and multiply, how many times we have heard things like six? Boy, I guess how many were an accident? None of them. There were no accidents. Did we want to have that many that quick? Not preferably. <laughs> But I'm glad we have them. They're not a burden. They're a blessing. But yet when you look at most families, the question is not how many can we have for the glory and honor of God. It's how many can we afford. But my Bible says that the righteous have never gone without. He owns the cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. And I have to trust Him. But if he said be fruitful and multiply, and I feel like God says to have kids, to have them. I'm not saying you have to have a bunch, but I'm just saying the deciding factor shouldn't be money. Think about that in the whole church world. Money shouldn't be the deciding factor of what we do. You have to consider it, I understand. But we're called to be what? Obedient. To step out in faith. 
to trust the Lord, to follow Him, to seek Him. The Lord takes care of the rest. I always tell people, and this is going to sound wrong, but I, it's a normal thing. When we watch the amount of money that we waste or the treasures that we have stored up for this life in our own lives, there should never be a funding issue in the church if we were really being sacrificial. I spend money all the time that I don't have to. Waste it all the time. And so we need to get back into this understanding. When the Bible says fear not, that's what it means. Be anxious for... You see, we have to be reminded that the Lord is our provider. The Lord is our steward. The Lord is the one that takes care of us. And I'm not just talking about financially. I'm talking about when God calls you to serve. When God calls you to step out. When God calls you to go on a mission trip. When God tells you to ride the van with me on a Sunday to help pick up kids. <laughs> I see what you did. I liked that, didn't you? So. But anyway, I'm just saying that. You have to believe that, that God is in control, that God can repair that marriage, that God can bring the prodigal home, that God can change someone's life, that God is able and He's in control. Thoughts, questions? Well, there's another verse there, but we don't have time to read it, and so you can read it on your own time. Yeah. So this is in Jesus' teaching, I believe this is part of the Sermon on the Mount of Luke, Luke 14, where he's talking about building a tower and considering the cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you have to consider. So, I mean, there, there's a point where absolutely. only a foolish person goes haphazardly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But what I have seen in my time in my life, God has never asked me to do something financially, let's say, when if I didn't actually bear down a little bit, that I couldn't do it. It's always been an inconvenience. Jan used to always tell this story all the time. She said, you will not believe how many times I've saved up for a new couch in my living room. And I would get just within a few dollars of having money to go buy that couch. Brother John would preach on missions, or someone would go on a trip, and the Lord would deal with me, and all that couch money went to them. And I asked her that one time, even in the hospital before she passed away, and she was asked to have the same couch. <laughs> because I think that, I really do believe that, that God expects us to do big things for Him. And I'm not talking just financially. I'm talking about going on mission trips. I'm talking about supporting those things. We have to count the cost. But if we're honest, most of the time, the reason we step back is because it'll be an inconvenience to us. When I went to... Uh, Randy, where did we go? Yeah, we went to Mexico. Fort, yeah. That was a very, very, very reasonable mission trip. The flight was very cheap. The trip was cheap. And I'll be honest with you, when I thought about going to Mexico or uh, Africa in the, in the past, it's like $5,000. Man, that's a lot of money. I, I could make it work. Man, I like to eat out on Sunday afternoon. And I like to do this on Sunday afternoon. And So I've always just kind of said, well, I think I'll wait. You know, I think I'll just I'll wait. You say, Jay, I can't believe you're saying that. I'm just telling you what you've all went through, all right? And this one came up. I thought, well, this is not too far. It's not too long. It's not too much. I can make this work without too much inconvenience to myself. And that is the honest truth. And I will hit. And now I don't care what it costs. When the Lord tells me to go, I'm going. And so even though I went with selfish motives, what could I, what could I do the littlest with? We went in November. You know what most families are thinking about with six kids in October November? Christmas! You know how much money it costs to buy Christmas presents for them hoodlums that live with me? Not as much as you think because my parents have been way too much, all right? But those things go through your mind. And I've been totally honest with you tonight. And I think about that so many times. If we would genuinely seek the Lord's face, which we should, like Dave said, but I'm afraid sometimes we consider the cost and we think it's just not worth the sacrifice that I might have to make. So let's just start right off tonight and make everybody mad. That's the way we'll, we'll just dive right into the night. The other, the other thing that you're yeah. talking about, and I can't tell you, I was in a car today, so I wasn't in the Christian radio, but what they were saying kind of hit a chord. You know, we've gone from being a Christian nation 
to a post-Christian nation, and now they're presenting that we're actually a pre-Christian nation. We're starting from ground zero that basically we're dealing with what we'll almost pagans yeah. that we're, we're having to convert over. And I really think a lot of it is still, uh, some of it is still geography, where you're at, right? So Dagger, we still have the nativity scene, and they still read from the Bible, the Christmas story. And so if you tried that, some half-infidel city like... Not Macedonia. Yeah, not Macedonia. <laughs> but you think about it, so I think a lot of it is very true. You look at the big cities, that's why they're working so hard at starting new churches. And they don't look like this church, all right? They are, they are different. I mean, you know, I hate seeing guys preaching skinny jeans, but whatever, all right? You know, if that's the contempt, you know, that's where they're at. But we're, he's right, these big cities, and there's such a secular um, pagan mindset. Uh, it, it's very true. All right, second. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to read verse 16, and then I'll give you the title. And the 24 elders who sat before God on the thrones fell on their face and worshiped God. God's people rejoice when God is at work. God's people rejoice when God is at work. When God is at work. Now, most of us would think that is true, right? Someone gets saved at church, we should celebrate. Someone joins the church, we should celebrate. When God is at work and moving and families are reconciled, we should celebrate. And that's what we see here. We looked earlier in the book of Revelation, the 24 elders, and I believe it is made up of the, of the Old Testament tribes and the New Testament uh, apostles representing the church. Okay, that's what I believe. Some people have differences of opinion. And so what you have is the church in heaven rejoicing before God in this attitude of humility. Right, look here. They fell on their faces and worshipped. We see this back in the book of Revelation chapter 4 for the first time, this group of people. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, Come up here and I will show you the things that must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so we've seen this at the beginning, right? What is going on? And now they have witnessed all of God's working and His moving, and they recognize it's coming to completion. And they begin to worship Him. They begin to celebrate Him. We've seen some of these examples throughout the New Testament and in the Old. Isaiah 6, verse 5, if you remember that interaction with the Lord and Isaiah. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, an un, of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Luke chapter 5, verse 8, in referring to Simon Peter. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In all of eternity, you are going to be reminded that it is the Lord is why you're there. When you people, when you'll hear people say, well, well, I, I believe like the Mormons do, that I believe I believe become a little God. No. You are going to go to heaven and there are going to be things for us to do. I believe there are tasks to accomplish. But it's all about Him. It's about worshiping Him, honoring Him, celebrating Him. A constant reminder the reason that I will be with Him forever is because of Him. And if that is the case for us in glory, that should be the case for us now. When we come into church to worship, we should be humble. We're not doing God a favor by coming. We're coming to worship Him because of what He's done for us, what He means to us, how He's worked in our lives. And I think this is really important because I think all of us can be guilty of thinking way too much of ourselves. 
You might not agree with that, but you're wrong. Alright? You've seen it in church. You've heard people say things. You've heard people do things when it becomes theirs. I want you to know something. This church, if it is a true Christ-honoring, Bible-believing church, it is because it is His. Not yours. I have no problem people say, I love my church. That, that brings me great joy because they love their church. But don't ever think it's yours as in possession. It's His. He died for the church. He is the one who shed His blood. We're a part of the church. We get to be in what He is doing, but it's His. And no matter what God uses you for, whether you're the best preacher, where you're the biggest giver, where you're the best deacon, where you're the head of the underwater basket weaving committee, whatever it is, God gave you that privilege. He's allowed us to serve. And when that's our heart in a church, God can do amazing things. When we don't care who gets the credit, we don't care who gets the recognition, we don't care whose idea it was, when we can get to that place as a group of believers, God can do amazing things. But you've all been in church long enough to see it done the other way. Pastor thinks it's all his. Deacons think it's all theirs. Trustees think it's all theirs. Right? Whatever group it is or whatever person it is. And friends, we must always be reminded that when we're right with God, we will be humble. We will worship. Humble and worship. And so when I come to church on a Sunday, I always pray for that. Lord, help me to worship. No matter what someone says right before I go up on the stage. Because sometimes people will catch me in the hallway, in between the song service and when and when I preach and Jamie calls on someone to pray and someone will be like, hey, hey, I didn't like that. Or I didn't like this. Or did you know about that? And I'm like, ah! I got a one-track mind. And if you throw something in it, it's going to be bad. Alright? So I have to pray, God, help me to be able to worship. God, help me to be able to focus on You. God, help me to be able to see who You are. And Lord, help me to be reminded that if it's about what I can contribute, nothing's going to get done. Right? We talked about that Sunday, the Holy Spirit convicting, working, moving, producing the results. And so I think it's just a beautiful picture here. They are trusting that God is in control and they're worshiping Him for that. They're honoring Him. Questions, thoughts? Alright. Verse 17. I'll give you the title after we read it. Alright. We saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and who is to come. God's people are thankful when God is working. You say, isn't that what we just looked at? No. They were humble and worshipped. But they gave thanks. They gave thanks. Look what it says here. In, in, in your Bible, you've probably got a number there uh, depending on your translation. and Because some of the uh, Bibles will say that they, you get to the who is and was and who was, who is to come. Some of that's not in the original language. But what it's really is saying is just like it does in other places. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? He, he has always been. All right? It's just a reaffirming of God's character that He was not created. He has always been God. All right? And so we give thanks to You, O Lord God, Almighty. And this word for Almighty can mean uh, unrestricted power. It can mean unstoppable victory. It can be used in a lot of those senses. But what it really means is God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Victory belongs to Him. We give thanks to You, O Lord God, the One who is and who was and who is to come because You have taken Your great power and reign. You see, they're celebrating the fact that God is not going to allow the sinfulness and wickedness of this world to stand. He is not going to allow Satan to win. He is victorious. Now, most of us have known powerful people who have done great things. 
And we have known powerful people who have done terrible things. You can read through history in the secular world and secular governments of people who have used their power to reform and to improve the lives of other people. And you've seen, if you've read anything about the Roman Empire and the Roman emperors, some of them were awful, terrible. But they are celebrating because of what God is doing. They've celebrated that He's in control. They've celebrated who He is. But they're also celebrating what He does. And I want to remind you of that in your life. Are you a person that is thankful? Or are you a person like me that can be pretty selfish? Are you a person that knows how good God has been to you? Or are you always living, breaking the Tenth Commandment? Coveting what someone else has? Always wanting more, not for God's glory, but for ours? Because what we see here is, if you are trusting that God's in control and you're worshiping Him, you are going to be thanking Him. Now sometimes that's easy to do in public. Let's be honest. I've sat in enough Sunday school classes, prayer meetings. That's why I got off Facebook. Because I could not stay in counseling a couple about how their marriage was falling apart. How much they hated each other. How they wanted to stab each other in their sleep. I'm sure they don't go here anymore, okay? It's all good. All right. <laughs> And then literally opening up Facebook before they even get out of the parking lot. And it's this big, long spiel about, they're just so good to me. My spouse could not be better, could not be nicer, could not be kinder. And in my mouth, I went. <laughs> I just couldn't do it anymore, and so I had to get off. But if we're genuinely thankful, we should not just be thankful in public. But can you thank God in private? When you go into your prayer closet, when it's just you and the Lord, can you say, Lord, I know our marriage isn't as good as it could be, but Lord, I'm thankful that you put us together. Lord, I know we don't have as much money as other people, but God, you've taken care of all of our needs. God, God, I know this could be different, or this could be different, or I'd like for this, but God, I'm thankful for who you are. Heart of thanksgiving. So, questions, thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> no quizzes. No quizzes. I always looked to have teachers that were easy, and I try to be that way as a pastor. No quizzes, all right? No quizzes. All right. Now let's read verse 18. We're almost done. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. The wicked hate when God is at work. The wicked hate when God is at work. Look what it says here. It starts with the nations were angry. And so I want you to think about the unfolding of this through the book of Revelation. It started out that they were unhappy with what God was doing. <clears throat> Then it got to the point that they were angry and wanting to kill the two witnesses. But it says at this point, with all that's going to go on in this seventh trumpet, it is going to lead them to rebellion. Right? You can flip over with me to Revelation chapter 18. We see the fall of Babylon the Great and the world mourns. You can look there in verse 18 again about how... Uh, the finality of Babylon's fall. But in chapter 19, you see all of mankind's rebellion coming to a head. Everything that you see. Look in verse 2. Let's read verse 1. And these things I heard, a, after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteousness are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. 
Again, they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And here's that group of 24 again, worshiping, worshiping. Why were they so, the world so angry? Go back to verse 2. His judgments, they're righteous and true. They hated that God called out their sin, that God punished them for their wickedness. And because of this judgment that they've been through, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we see this ultimate rebellion. But look at verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, behold, white hopes. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges. There's that word again. And makes war. And you can go on and read it. But look what it says in verse 14. <coughs> Verse 13, He was clothed with the robe dripped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it He would strike the nations, and He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. There's that Almighty again that you can't stop Him. He is all-powerful. He is victorious and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written now I said all that and you said well, where's the destroying part it's there in verse 19 right it's all about God's judgment the the, the fact that there has been revealed their wickedness and rebellion and I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, worshipped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceedeth from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What happens in chapter eleven starts this quick running to what happens in chapter 19. Right? He is describing what will happen. Because look what it says there in verse 18. Your wrath has come. That is a verbiage and a, and a meaning in the Greek that means it's a future event that is guaranteed to happen. If you go on down after that, your wrath has come. We see that destruction. We know the time of the dead and they should be judged. We can read in the book of Revelation when you flip on past chapter 19, right? We can see of the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, verse 11. And so we see this. We can see here in the same part though, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. Now, there's a few differences of opinions in what this means, and you can take it for whatever you want it to mean, I guess. But two groups of people here, prophets and saints. We can read through the Old Testament about the prophets proclaiming the truth of God. In the New Testament, it's not prophet, it's messengers, preachers. And what do we know? The Bible tells those who faithfully honor God and handle His Word will receive a special reward. And the saints there are God's people. God doesn't judge us at the great white throne judgment, right? But it's the rewards for our faithful service to Him. Now we know that we just turn those back around to Him. He's the one that accomplished it. He's the one who did it in our life. But He is walking us through right here in this little section what's going to happen in the rest of the book. But don't miss this. He keeps saying, has come. He referenced it back in verse 16 because it is guaranteed. It's not a question of if the judge, the dead will be judged. It's not a question of if we will receive our rewards. It's not a question of if the nations are going to revolt. It's all guaranteed to happen. Why? Because God is in control and God has a plan. God has a purpose. And I have to trust Him. But don't look, don't miss this last section and I'll, I'll be done. And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. We see the heart of what it means to be a child of God. We respect Him. We fear Him. Not in the sense of, of terrified, but of reverence. 
And it says they're small and great. It's just this reminder that at the foot of the cross, we're all saved the same way. You can have nothing on this earth, but yet we see the promises. You can have everything on this earth, and we see the promises. But look at that last statement there, because I listened to a preacher the other day that, that was... Uh, anyway, I'll just... He's from Scotland. He's a friend of mine, but he's a yo-yo, all right? And it says, And you should destroy those who destroy the earth. And he told me that that is a verse for everyone who doesn't take care of the environment. And I said, Don't be like that. That's not what he's talking about. God's going to be the one that destroys it. right? He's going to be the one that burns it up. And so we were having this discussion about what does that mean? Well, I believe it means that all of us have sinners. Our sin is what brought the fall of creation. Right? That's when death entered the world after sin. And the Bible tells us that all of creation grows. I said what he's telling us here is that sin has destroyed this earth and all of us who have not experienced forgiveness have contributed to the problem. Even those of us who are saved have contributed to the problem, but yet we are forgiven. And what he's saying is, he's just saying that sin is going to be punished. He liked his view better than mine. I think mine was right and his was not, all right? But I want you to see this because when you look through this section, you can go to the end of this book and see all of it unfolding as it says. Why? Because God was giving them just a little bit of a picture of what's going to happen. And then in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, He shows us the details. That's how it was in the Old Testament, right? They were given some of the truth, but yet they didn't understand everything. Now as New Testament Christians, we understand. We can look back to the death of Christ, where they were looking forward to the Messiah that was going to come, to the Savior that was going to come. But when we look, we understand. You could read the book of Hebrews, and I have one here for you, in Hebrews 9, verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copy of these things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves will be better sacrificed than these, right? The Old Testament was a picture, but Christ is this perfect fulfillment. We know that the that the the Old Testament articles in the temple, you could look at all of them and you can tie them in to Christ and, and what he done and, and, and how he represents from the from the mercy suit to the Ark of the Covenant. All of those things were a picture, were foreshadowing who Christ is going to be. And that's what he does in this little section. He points us to what is going to happen. And it's to give us hope. So, questions, thoughts? Jake, in the same way that, that in Genesis, the first you get the uh, creation account, and then in the following verses, then it comes back and puts the detail back. Absolutely. And in the same way that the revelation is written. Absolutely. If you didn't hear that, he said it's the same thing in the book of Genesis where you get the overview of creation. And then he goes back and what? Fills in all the details. Not all the details, you know. I don't think Adam and Eve had a belly button, right? So you can, you can argue with that if you want to or not. But uh, right, it, it fills in all the details of the days. That's what we see here. It's an overview to give us hope. That's the only thing you're going to be thinking about the rest of the sermon. <laughs> it didn't come out of their mouth. Why don't they have an opinion? That was your fault. It's your fault. <laughs> See, we were in such a good place, and then Jake <laughs> mentioned Genesis and creation. That's where my mind always go. Sorry. All right, last verse. Last verse will be done. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquakes. This kind of gets a little bit difficult because when you read in the end of Revelation chapter 21, John, describing this new city, says, Now I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are in its temple. 
If you remember throughout the Old Testament, like Ezekiel chapters 40 through 42 describes a millennial temple. We've already looked at the temple that the Antichrist will uh, create the abomination in. We looked at that in 2 Thessalonians. And yet, so the question is, is how is there a temple that he sees, but yet in the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple? Well, it's because one, you have to be reminded that in verse 23 of Hebrews, that what is on earth is a copy. It's to point us to that. And so think about this for just a minute. Temple is the presence of God. In heaven, we are going to be and the new heavens and the new earth, He is going to be among us and we are going to worship Him. There's no need for an eternal temple when He is with us. What does the Ark of the Covenant mean? It means it's a covenant. A covenant that He is going to be our God and we are going to be His people. And that will be fulfilled in this period of time. Why? Because His promise has been kept. And so I believe that you will have the temples that are referred to in Ezekiel and in 2 Thessalonians and all of those things. But what he's showing us here is, is a connection between who God is, what God is doing, and what we understand. And so this is so important because you need to be reminded that a relationship with Him forever is the crowning goal of life. It's not sit around a fish all of eternity. Right? It's not to square dance with your loved ones or whatever else you want to do in heaven. Heaven is about the simple fact that the God who created everything, who spoke the world into existence, who hung the stars, who created life out of nothing, who, who is perfect and holy in every way, is willing to have communion with us, a relationship with us for all of eternity. What was broken in the garden when God walked among them is restored to perfection. And it's showing us that. That all of that. And in verse, it finishes there and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. And that's just a, refer, a reference anytime to the power of God, the authority of God, the judgment of God, the, the deliverance of God. It's just a powerful display in that day and age for the, the things that could not be explained. Right? The, the wonders of creation that God has created. So chapter 11 ends with this simple thing. Things are really, really bad on the earth. And they're getting ready to get worse. But God is in control. Trust Him. Believe in Him. Rely on Him. Because He is in control. And so for us, I think the truth is still the same. We have to believe He's in control when the storms of life happen. We have to believe that He has a plan when I don't see what He's doing. And I have to trust Him when my flesh is weak and fails Him.